Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to D.G. Wills Books in La Jolla, California. Uh, this evening, we're delighted to have uh, uh, UCSD professor Deborah Hertz, who is here to discuss her new book from Yale University Press, How Jews Became Germans, The History of Conversion and Assimilation in Berlin. Uh, professor Hertz holds the Herman Wouk Chair in Modern Jewish Studies at the University of California at San Diego and is the author of Jewish High Society and Old Regime Berlin. And as an extra treat tonight, uh, uh, literary agent Sandra Dykstra has agreed to introduce Professor Hertz. Sandra Dykstra. When Deborah asked if I would introduce her tonight, I said, why me? And yet, as I was reading through her new book, How Jews Became Germans, just published by Yale, a few thoughts came to me, a few possibilities. And in following this trail, you learn a lot about Deborah. Uh, I'm of Jewish background, but that wouldn't have done it because there are lots of us. And my forebears were Russian, so that wouldn't have worked. I'm not a historian, although I once was an academic, but that too is a big group. However, like Deborah, I studied women's history, and my focus, however, being on France, but of the same period. And one of her heroines, Rahel von Hagen, and mine, Flora Tristan, each became enamored of the utopian socialists of their time, so that was a connection. Aha, even more significant, is the fact that both of us came of age, and I came of age earlier, during the feminist era, when discovering the distaff side of history became really a passion for both of us, I think, and vital. And her new book, Subject, which focuses on Berlin, wherein she studies and uncovers the story of assimilation, revealed another connection, another possible connection to me between her subject and my interests. After all, who was La Jolla's most famous German Jew born in Berlin? Herbert Marcuse. And uh, he was San Diego's, perhaps San Diego's foremost internationally known export. And uh, in fact, there is a Marcuse, Fradkin Marcuse, in the narrative of how Germans became how Jews became Germans, get that backward. Um, and in fact, Dennis, who is the bookseller par excellence, and we're so lucky that he does what he does in this cultural oasis, hosted an evening for a new book on Marcuse just a few months ago. Uh, so that was another connection. And also one of her heroines, Rahel Varnhagen, also, she, like me, married outside the faith. Those were the connections I could think of. Uh, whatever the reason, here I am, honored to be introducing Dennis's star of the evening, Deborah Hertz, a brave and bold researcher and thinker, someone who is rewriting our histories as women, as Jews, and as humans at a time in which assimilation is undergoing ever stronger resistance from those whose immigrant parents assimilated only decades ago. 
I will just end by saying that Deborah's book explores the multitude of reasons one might convert or assimilate, then or now, in each case weighing the choice of being ostracized by one's community, by not being, for example, a race man in the case of Obama, as we're hearing, or of being a cosmopolitan. And in this book, she tells us the history of a group of people who faced those choices and who made very daring uh, decisions with their lives. Thank you. Uh, let me start by thanking Mr. Wills for inviting me and Sandy for the kind introduction. I always felt at home in this store, and often on my way to UCSD from Bird Rock, I stand in front of the window imagining my book there. I wish, <laughs> from pure egotistical uh, motives, I can say I wish this hour could last and last because I have longed for it for a long time. My Andy Warholian five minutes will be over all too quickly. So I appreciate uh, the chance to have them. I also want to thank the donors at UCSD Judaic Studies Program who founded an endowed chair named after the esteemed local novelist, now 90 years old, Herman Woke. Now most people only call me to speak because they think I might get Mr. Woke to speak, so I expect that to come. <laughs> When I first received my appointment, my friends in Princeton, New Jersey teased me that I was becoming the Marjorie Morningstar professor. Indeed, I don't know if you know the 1954 novel by Herman Woke about Marjorie Morning, called Marjorie Morningstar. Indeed, my appointment with this title was somewhat beshert, as we say in Yiddish, destined and fated for the good. I first read the novel Marjorie Morningstar when I was a teen, and without it, um, I'm not sure I could have reconciled my longings for the bohemian and dissident lifestyle and the joys of becoming a Jewish wife and a mother. Um, and I won't comment any more on that eternal dichotomy. Okay, um, uh, so let me talk about my book. This book was born many, many years ago when I was still a graduate student in German history. I discovered the Judenkartei in a West Berlin archive. Without that discovery, I surely would have continued on the path of my dissertation, a study of Jewish salon women in 18th century Berlin, a thesis that eventually became Jewish high society. But I knew from the first day in the archive that the Judenkartei would allow me to write a comprehensive history of conversion that went far beyond the focus of the thesis, uh, which was only on a 25-year epoch of Jewish women's history. In other words, I knew I had a huge book on my hands, and I just kept waiting until the little book was done until I would face this, this monster book. Um, let me talk a little bit about the Judenkartei. They're a set of about 60 narrow black notebooks containing the names and the personal data of tens of thousands of Jews who became Protestants in Berlin. So you'll notice no Catholics. I can be happy to talk about that later. The records appeared to cover almost three centuries, beginning in 1645 and going up to 1933. And ultimately, I discovered that after 1874, the cohort was getting older and older. So in fact, they don't really go to 1830, 1933, but they appeared to do so at the beginning. Now, the impetus to create the Judenkartei was not initially genocidal. And I'll probably get some questions of people who will tell me I'm wrong about that. And I'd be happy to chat about that. Um, the notion was that Christian religious identity was not the same as Aryan identity, although the Jewish side of the equation remained in curious ways religious and not ethnic. In other words, you had Judaism and Christianity, you had Aryan and Jewish, or as they first called it, Aryan and not Aryan. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of problems with those, uh, with those two bipolar um, antinomies that we could talk about. In 1933, when the sta ra state racial institutes and the Protestant church began to create the notebooks, there were almost half a million affiliated Jews in Germany. But there were also another half million unaffiliated Jews, mainly who were partial Jews and the descendants of converts. So to be the descendant of a convert and the descendant of partial Jews is not exactly the same. You could be 100% Jewish 
and every generation could have in, could have converted. Um, it's 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 extremely complicated. There's another a number of different possibilities. The Judenkartei would allow individuals with a mixed background to clarify their racial heritage, and then after you went to see the the church uh, to get the Judenkartei, you would gather all your records. You would put them in what was called an Aryan pass. You could buy a little leather leather container for your Aryan pass. It was an industry. There were 500 uh, genealogy experts who went around uh, accumulating this material. And the state brought Jewish archivists in the project as well, a story with much sadness and ambivalence, which I tell in my first chapter. Um, from my first day in the archive, I knew I had a second book in my hands, but I couldn't decide what to do. Now, my emotional stance from the very beginning was always redemptive, and it remains so. As a Jew, I owed it to my people and to our history to redeem these records and discover something interesting about conversion in the German-Jewish past. But as you see, if you read the book, um, my stance is is by no means that of a traditional Jewish historian either. So my antinomies were very complicated. I was raging against the Nazis. I was redeeming them for Jewish history, but I didn't want to use them in the way that other historians had written about Jewish conversion, which will become clear in a few minutes. Uh, by the time I sat down to write the book, I had weathered some storms of first authorship and had begun to react to some of the criticisms voiced by other historians of German Jewry about my first book, The Salon Book. The women's breaks with their families over arranged marriage, their flirtations in the literary salons with noblemen and bold romantic intellectuals, their stormy divorces, their inheritance fights, their frequency second marriages, and this is all without sex, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, to the men they met in salons had all appealed to my rebellious feminist self. My esteemed colleague Stephen Lowenstein wrote a book about the same era where he lamented my enthusiasms, although he largely agreed with my statistical and historical analyses. But Stephen's shock at my sympathy for the salon women stimulated me to think about conversion. Ultimately, I realized that an in-depth portrait of the individuals so famous in Berlin during the era of enlightenment and the romantic would help me answer the quandary I had already faced in the salon book. Some of us always write the same book, right? We change things, but our inner, our inner questions are, are still, are still um, fomenting. Uh, why did religiously skeptical individuals convert? Were their baptisms intrinsically opportunist? Betrayals of Judaism when its fortunes were very, very low indeed? Or did they deserve the fundamental right of modernity to create a new identity? To ask these questions felt dangerous in the context of Jewish history, but I had some deeply personal reasons for asking them. Throughout my adult life, I've been aware of how happy I am enjoying the cultural and even the religious experiences of Judaism and the Israeli version of modern secular nationalism. Yet given the complicated politics of the Middle East and the problems Jewish women have faced over history, uh, confronting religious law and religious authorities, how could I intellectually justify my primitive ethnic happiness? Thus I had a very personal quest. That wasn't one of the jokes that I was thinking of. Uh, when I began this book, I wanted to do justice to the very serious problem of Judaism losing its best and its brightest, yet also to do justice to the individuals who made the painful choices, possibly for valid motives. Over time, especially after immersing myself in the 20th century diary of Victor Klemperer, which I heartily recommend, uh, I came to the conclusion that many of my converts in the 19th century did not have pragmatic reasons to become Protestants. Um, to com but rather did so to complete their identity, their inward identity as Germans. And this is one of the reasons for the title that I have it. This helped to fill in the empty space between authentic religious conversion, which was common among the trickle of poor Jews uh, who converted in the 17th and early 18th century, and the obviously pragmatic converts who sought a professorship or a marriage to a Christian. 
As I wrote up the book, I was aware that our models of religious conversion need to be extraordinarily subtle and historically rooted. Uh, so let me say just a tiny bit about the title here. Um, uh, converting was for many a way to become German on the inside, which the act of conversion was of course forced on them uh, by a state who required it for emancipation, which is a, ma a major theme in the book, how that evolved, because that certainly wasn't the case in, when the book begins. Um, but it was also willed by thousands of Jews who could not wait for authentic emancipation. So um, my sympathies are with the converts my, in, in looking at the whole picture of what they faced. And I try to restore in this book agency to the Jewish converts, because you often read a lot of Jewish history in which Jews are constantly uh, portrayed as the victim. And in certain historical circumstances, yeah, they were. But in other historical circumstances, what the Jew, what the what the best and the brightest of the Jews wanted and what some of the state officials wanted was actually fairly close and that interested me greatly. Um, now, did they become German? Uh, yes, in many ways they did. Otherwise, the Judenkartei would never have needed to exist. In other words, these descendants of, of the people who converted, who continued to intermarry, um, uh, were certainly proof that assimilation was highly, highly successful. Uh, was it easy uh, for them to join German society even after they had converted? No. And it's in that sense that I explore the dark side of, 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 of their decisions. Now, let me turn to my substantive findings. Uh, enough about the... <laughs> motivations and the feelings. Um, I showed how the early converts in the era of Shabbatian messianism, this is the period of the 17th century when, um, when the descendants of the crypto-Jews are returning to Judaism and when there's a lot of um, so-called false messiahs uh, who are agitating the borders um, between the religions. The pietists, who are a very emotional kind of Protestants who work so hard to recruit the converts, really interested me. And what I found about them was that they wanted a more emotional and communitarian Protestant experience. Some of them toyed with what I would call syncretism schemes, little colonies where the converts could have their Hanukkah menorahs and then there would be a Christmas tree and they would be able to integrate all their identities, extremely modern. Uh, my work on this chapter raised problematic questions about whether the impulse to convert Jews rendered a Christian intrinsically anti-Semitic. This was a really tough issue for me um, uh, to raise as a Jewish historian. Um, when I moved on to the more familiar territory of the 19th century, I had a very clear ch challenge, the second challenge, which was to use the Katai uh, to test my friend Stephen Lowenstein's notion of the family crisis. Now, the notion of the family crisis is that conversion in Berlin, a very, very important city, which I'd be happy to talk about why, increases in the 1770s, remains very, very high, going from 10 a year up to 60, up to close to 100 a year, and then about 1830 rather rapidly drops down. Now, this is the period uh, which Gershom Scholem, the great Jewish intellectual of the 20th century, who was himself came out of a background something like this, escapes and goes to Palestine and then views with his incredibly critical eye everything uh, that I've been talking about. Sholem referred to this era as the era of the false start, when the most richest and most privileged Jews had left Judaism. In other words, in the 17th and early 18th century, it's mainly poor Jews. They're mainly very sincere. Their conversion gets them nothing. They walk around peddling their books, <laughs> trying to sell them. They die in poverty, um, and, um, and, they're, and they're, they gain nothing 
material from their conversions. But beginning in the late 18th century and into the 19th century, in the era of this family crisis, the best and the what I call the best and the brightest uh, uh, leave Judaism. Um, uh, so it, what's very, very interesting is that um, the Jewish community that we think of as this great Jewish community of 19th and 20th century Germany is actually in its cultural, in its institutional, in its religious creations is not the descendant of the great court Jewish families of the 18th century because those people are out. And it's these poor boys who come to the University of Berlin. Uh, some of them convert, but many of them do not. Not just the boys, but <laughs> their wives and their daughters, who build up the modern German Jewry uh, that many of us are familiar with. A third finding of the book concerns the Jewish loyalty of the super-rich. Um, and then there's some families that I bring into very, 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 very high relief here. One of them is a family named the Bears. Um, and in fact, the pictures here are pictures from a play that that opened in 1815. The title of the play is very funny. It's called Unser Verkehr. And if you know German, you might translate as our intercourse. <laughs> but it's really not that. It's our society. And it's a play mocking all the people I'm writing about. And if there's one person who sums up um, um, uh, the kind of person I'm interested in, it's, it's the guy on the top right. And I think, he's, I think it's a very Gentile Sorry, that was a slip. A very gentle satire, although some of you, um, 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 <laughs> some of you <laughs> might disagree. Um, now, what I learned from studying the bears was that if you were at the very top of the Jewish social structure, you had very good reasons not to convert. So in other words, in addition to using a pragmatic analysis to study the Jews who do convert, I try to be very hard-headed and pragmatic about why somebody would not convert, so that loyalty and conversion you know, both come under uh, my gaze. Uh, the, the Bears were this power couple in Berlin. Every week they had dinner with Chancellor Hardenberg, who was writing the Jewish legislation for Jewish emancipation. So they, if they had converted, would have completely lost wh why it was that Hardenberg was interested in having dinner with them, which is that he could uh, uh, get from them a sense of what the Jewish community uh, would or would not accept. Um, uh, and I compare them a lot to the Mendelssohn family. As you may well know, Moses Mendelssohn was the great Jewish intellect of 18th century uh, Berlin, 18th century Germany, 18th century Europe, the 18th century world. And his uh, four of his six children convert, two to Protestant, two to become Catholic. And they're all very, very central in my book because um, I couldn't understand exactly why they converted and spent a long time trying to understand that. Um, the story of the Bears and the Mendelssohn helped me understand anti-Semitic objections uh, to the partial emancipation which the Prussian Jews were granted in 1811. Um, unlike the French emancipation, which was complete, equal rights for equal duties. You pay your taxes, you serve in the army, you can become a citizen. And of course, we know that France is the you know, the country of secular citizenship. So it fits very well into our images of France. In Germany, it's completely different. It's, you can have a partial emancipation, we'll let you serve in the army, we'll let you pay taxes, but maybe you'll have this job and maybe you'll have that job and maybe you won't. Now, for historians of German Jewry, that partial emancipation has been used to explain why Reform Judaism emerges in Germany and not elsewhere. Because you have to prove by your services that you're really secular, you're really modern, and you're really Jewish. And in, sorry, German. <laughs> That's a tough one. Okay, and in chapter five of the book, one of my main goals is to show how Amalia Baer and her husband together found Reform Judaism. And some of the things that I uncovered in that discovery of Reform Judaism were very, very ironic. They charged, 
you know, a huge amount of money to go to services. There's a teacher who wants to bring his Christian students. They threaten to call the police. You know, the details are all unbelievably uh, modern and, and sometimes quite, uh, quite hilarious. Um, I spent quite a lot of time on the economic history of the emancipation. So in 1812, the Jews are granted emancipation. In 1813, Germany, Prussia, Prussia goes to war against Napoleonic France and ultimately is victorious. And those few years took me years because I, it felt like I was in, I was with them for every minute because the emancipation itself was granted largely because the Jews made so many donations to the state's coffer at a time when Napoleon was thinking of just you know, chucking off Berlin, uh, uh, Prussia altogether, um, and so that was a very, very fascinating moment to take a to take a very cold look at what Jewish emancipation meant, and to understand why, for unsympathetic observers, everything Jewish was connected to money. So the notion that you could buy your emancipation, that that um, uh, that people would do things out of financial reasons, was you know, it stuck to Jewish experience like a like a a horrible shadow or a cloud, and the deeper I went into history, I couldn't quite necessarily get rid of it, even though, of course, it's not the only, uh, the only level. A fourth finding of the book was that the noble gestures of Jewish pride were available to Jewish men and not to Jewish women. Now, I write this book, Sandy mentioned the passion for women's history. My other book was written as a purely restorative uh, book of here's a group of Jewish women, nobody ever looked at them, here they are. That's really what I did. Here, the women's story is woven in, maybe it's so woven in that it disappears, but, uh, but I hope not. And what I found, first of all, um, the woman, Sandy called her the hero of the book. In the conclusion, I say I think she may have been the anti-heroine. -hero, I'm not sure heroine is still a word, but, well, O-I-N-E. Um, uh, but um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very conflicted about how far a Jewish woman could go to to synthesize all the strivings of the era. In other words, to achieve some kind of personal fulfillment, but to also possibly be a loyal Jew, or, or how, if you were not going to be a loyal Jew, what were your other choices? And I came across a man named Morris Itzig, who was a 24-year-old, and he was at a, the salon of his aunt. An anti-Semitic nobleman comes to the salon, starts throwing around insults. He threatens a duel. The anti-Semitic nobleman says, I'm not going to duel with you. You're not worthy of a duel. Um, and in fact, the duel never takes place. Uh, my, my, my hero, Moritz Itzig, dies on the battlefield as a Prussian soldier fighting for Prussia, and the anti-Semitic nobleman remains on his estate, you know, working on his gardens. But what interested me was that that was, that was something a Jewish man could do. He could take on a noble gesture and convert it into a proud self-defense of his, of, his, of his religion. But I couldn't find any space for a woman to do anything of that nature. Uh, so that, that a woman who wanted to change her life uh, often ended up in the search for, the des sometimes desperate search uh, for, for an intermarriage. Um, the book ends in 1833. It's kind of an uncanny date if you think about 1833 and 1933 when Rahel Levin von Hagen died. Um, and I just want to close um, by sharing with you um, a, a few, um, one, one quote from her deathbed um, in which I got to criticize Hannah Arendt. Now that doesn't happen to me very often in life because anyone who knows me well knows that I went into this whole field because, largely because of Hannah Arendt and her, um, was her first real monograph was written, was a book about Rahel von Hagen that she finished before she left Germany in 
1933. Um, and so when, when Hannah Arendt reco recorded her, her closing words, she, she quotes from Rahel Vonnegut, What a history, a fugitive from Egypt and Palestine, and here I am, find help, love, fostering in you people. With real rapture, I think of these origins of mine and this whole nexus of destiny through which the oldest memories of the human race stand side by side with the latest developments. The greatest distance in time and space are bridged. The thing which all my life seemed to me the greatest shame, which was the misery and misfortune of my life having been born a Jewess, this I should no account have wanted to have missed. And this is how Hannah Arendt saw Rahel Vonhagen as a returning prodigal Jew. But when we read the original, we find out that she then went on to say, I have thought of Jesus and cried over his passion. I have felt for the first time so felt it that he is my brother. And Mary, how did she suffer? She saw her beloved son suffer but did not succumb. She stood at the cross. So there were this, this quote that was sitting in front of Hannah Arendt's eyes that she couldn't see because she wanted to Judaize uh, Rahel Vonhagen, but I've tried to restore uh, her to her real complexity. And I have one more quote to read, um, and then I'll be done. So this is a quote um, uh, that I read in the newspaper by Avram Borg. Avram Borg is a, um, a, a policymaker, an intellectual, a former member of Knesset, perhaps the former head of the Jewish agency, I don't know all his accolades, uh, who lives in, in, in Jerusalem. And he was reviewing a book on German Jewry, and he wrote this sentence. The Jews of Germany, barricaded against reality, self-satisfied, gifted, went to their death with the fury they aroused in the Germans, imposing a death sentence on Jews everywhere. Okay, so he was taking everything that Gershom Shalom had been writing in a subtle and sophisticated way and turning up the heat 1,000% and attacking everyone that I had been trying for, I won't say how many years, to defend. Uh, to put my mind at rest, I went through all his claims one by one. Were these converts prototypical of all Jewish Germans in the modern era? No, but they were particularly visible at a turning point in the modern era, and they set a pattern which continued even when the proportion choosing conversion fell later. Were they barricaded against reality? Perhaps, but such a blindness must have been necessary to take on the risks they chose. Were they gifted? Felix Mendelssohn, Heinrich Heine, were they gifted? Like, they were gifted, okay. Um, uh, did their successful assimilation arouse fury in the Christian Germans? Yes. Achim von Arnheim, the story of the duel, was one, only one of many examples. Does that fury explain the extermination of the Jews of Europe, six million of them? Here I think Berg has gone too far. He's blaming the victims and he's conflated hatred for assimilated Jews and hatred for traditional Jews. But in spite of the exaggerated simplicity of his denunciation, Berg threw down the gauntlet to the whole trend of assimilation the converts epitomized. His challenge stings even after I have tried my best to defend the converts and the entire legacy of Jews in Germany. Thank you.